you got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Genesis chapter 39. We are getting back this morning to the story of the life of Joseph. We left off with him at the end of chapter 37 as he was betrayed by his brothers, having had a couple of pretty strange dreams where he foresaw through the Lord's providence that his brothers would one day bow down to him. His brothers didn't take kindly to that, and so they got rid of him. They threw him in a pit, and then one of them had the idea, instead of killing him, let's sell him to these Ishmaelites who are on their way down to Egypt. And so they did so, and that's where we last left him. We had last week this interlude that God providentially provided for us in chapter 38, the story of Judah and Tamar. And I was never more excited to be finished with one chapter of Scripture in one Sunday than I was last week. So we're, we're finished with that by God's grace, and we are back to the story. That was kind of like, meanwhile, back at the ranch, right? Now we're back with Joseph, and we're going to see what happens as we continue to look at the story of his life. And so uh, follow along if you've got your Bibles in front of you. We're going to read Genesis chapter 39 the entire chapter, verses 1 through 23. This is God's word. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of the Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, And that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer over his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him... He had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in his house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you. Because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the very same story, saying, This Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. 
But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, that this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the way that you inspired human authors to pin these exact words in this exact way and how you and your divine providence recorded these particular stories for your own reasons. And so we ask, Father, this morning that you would help us to understand, not just become more familiar with this very familiar Bible story, but Lord, to be able to understand why you recorded it here why you put this in scripture and what we're to walk away from this story with. We ask, Father, that you would use your word this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives to make us look more like Jesus than when we came in this morning. We ask that it would bear fruit in our lives and in our families and in our church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the end of chapter 37... Last time we were with Joseph, his brothers had sold him to the Ishmaelites and he was on his way down to Egypt. So now we pick up that story now in chapter 39 and we see Joseph in Egypt. The Ishmaelites have arrived there and the first thing they do is they sell him as a servant, as a slave to this guy named Potiphar. And so we're introduced to this guy named Potiphar and we're told that he is an officer of Pharaoh who is the supreme ruler of Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh is an officer of his, and his rank is that of captain. His job is to be the captain of the royal guard, and so he's a very important person in Pharaoh's court. And Joseph is sold to him as a servant, as a slave in his house, and he quickly proves himself to Pharaoh to be very useful in his household. It seems that everything that Joseph did succeeded. Everything that he had, kind of the the golden touch, the Midas touch, everything that he did was met with success. So much so that Potiphar himself notices that the Lord is with him, that Yahweh is with Joseph. And so he puts Joseph in charge of all that he owns. But then we're also introduced to Potiphar's wife in the story. We're never told her name. She's just referred to as Potiphar's wife. And she's portrayed in this story as the lonely housewife with wandering eyes. And she has eyes for Joseph. And Joseph successfully refuses her seductions for a while, thinking, how could I do such a thing to my master who has been so kind and so generous to me and who has put me in charge of everything in his house How could I do such a thing to him by taking his wife to myself? And so for a time, 
although it is freely offered, he refuses and he resists that temptation. Until one day, his resistance is met with her persistence. One day, he goes into the house, and it's just Potiphar's wife and him. Nobody else is there. None of the other servants are there. Perhaps that should have been a warning sign to Joseph in that moment. Once again, she solicits Joseph, but this time, not just verbally, this time she is physical. She grabs his garment, perhaps his outer robe, And this time, Joseph doesn't say a word. He doesn't try to reason with her and provide a rationale for why this is wrong. He just runs. He hightails it out of there, leaving Potiphar's wife still holding his garment. Story goes on. She she tells the servants. She calls out to them, and she makes up this story about how it was really Joseph that was seducing me and tried to lie with me, and I cried out, and he left, and he left his garment here beside me. And then her husband comes home, and she tells him the very same story. This Hebrew servant whom you brought into our house has done this to me, and immediately Potiphar has Joseph thrown into prison. But no sooner is Joseph thrown into prison than he rises in the ranks in captivity as well. And the jailer puts everything eventually under Joseph's charge. And again, we're told that the Lord is with him even there and that everything that he does is met with success in prison as well as when he was in Potiphar's house. So that's the story. That's the narrative that the Lord has recorded for us in Scripture. Now, our job this morning is to try to glean from this. What are the the lessons we're to learn from this? And What application are we to to make to this story that God's provided? This this story that's very familiar to us. Sometimes familiarity brings with it a sense of not really understanding what's underneath the surface. And so I want us to look on two separate planes this morning. We've, We've talked about this. If you've been with us as we've been walking through the book of Genesis, we've talked about these two different planes that we're to understand biblical narrative, and, and in particular, Old Testament narrative. These familiar biblical stories that we remember from Sunday school. We remember from the, from the, the, the picture books of the Bible stories that we remember from our childhood. We, we, we glean lessons from two different planes. One is what I would call the, a moralistic plane. It's kind of on the surface. And then the other is what I call the redemptive historical plane. Where we, where we kind of back away from the weeds of the story. In the moralistic plane, we're, we're looking at the characters in the story and the plot and the theme of the story, and we're asking ourselves, what are we to learn from these characters and their lives in this particular story? Are any of these characters put forward for us as an example to follow? Are any of them put forward as examples of how not to live? And how not to act? Are any of the characters here examples to us? When we're looking at the moralistic plane, we're diving into the weeds of the story itself and the characters that are in the story. And sometimes we have to kind of put blinders on in order to focus on this particular story at this particular moment in time so that we can understand more about their life and what we learn from that. Now, when we move to the redemptive historical plane, we take those blinders off. 
and we detach ourselves from the weeds of the story, we back up to the proverbial 30,000 feet, and we try to see how this story is connected to God's overall overarching plan in history. And so when we do this, we need to remind ourselves what is God's overarching purpose and plan in history? What is he doing? And then ask ourselves, how do the characters in this story and how does the the actual plot and theme and content of this story how does it fit within the overall narrative of what God is doing in redemption and restoration? So chapter 39, in this chapter, we can glean some lessons from both of these planes. And so I want to look at both of them. And, and, and to be honest, I think that our interpretation of, of this particular passage is incomplete if we don't look at both of those planes. And so let's look first at the moralistic plane. I think part of the reason that Moses sandwiched chapter 38 in between chapter 37 and 39. This story of Judah and Tamar sandwiched right between these larger narratives in chapter 37 and 39 of Joseph is because there is this juxtaposition between the two brothers, Joseph and Judah. Moses wants us to recognize here that both of these brothers are faced with sexual temptation. Judah is tempted twice. First by the Canaanite woman that he sees when he goes to the sheep shearing festival and he sees, or or actually it was before that, this Canaanite woman that he sees and whom he ends up marrying. And then later he's also tempted by Tamar whom he presumes to be a prostitute but who in reality is his daughter-in-law. And both times, sadly, Judah succumbs to those temptations. At the beginning of the chapter, he saw the Canaanite woman. He liked the Canaanite woman, so he took the Canaanite woman. Later made him his wife. Then later, he sees Tamar. He likes Tamar. He He likes what he sees, and so he takes Tamar. And so Judah's response to temptation in chapter 38 is to give in to it. He sees it. He likes what he sees, and so he takes what he sees. And we talked about that last week. But here in chapter 39, Moses seems to be contrasting now Judah's response to sexual temptation with the response that we see from Joseph here in chapter 39. Now perhaps this may be a little bit of reading between the lines because we're never actually told that Joseph is actually tempted by Potiphar's wife. We're not explicitly told that, but I think we can infer that. I don't think he runs away. I don't think he flees because he's concerned that maybe she is going to overpower him. No, I think he flees from her because he's aware of his own natural weaknesses and his flesh in the face of sexual temptation. I believe he is tempted by her sexual advances. And he knows that this is wrong. And he knows that he will not stand up underneath it. And so he he eventually runs away. He flees. So the fact that Moses is contrasting the brothers here and how they respond to this kind of temptation tells me that Moses is setting forth Joseph in this story as an example for us. He's he's setting up Joseph's resisting of sexual temptation as exemplary for us, his readers. Now, I don't believe this is the primary passage, the primary application of this text, but I do believe it to be a secondary application. We'll get to the primary one in just a moment, but 
I believe that interpreting a passage of Scripture like this exclusively on the redemptive historical plane is really missing a very important lesson that we're to walk away from. It's kind of like missing the trees for the forest. It's backing away to the 30,000-foot level a little bit too soon and missing what I believe here is a very clear moral lesson. And what is that lesson? It is to refuse to give in to sexual immorality and to flee from it when we are tempted by it. We see what appears to be kind of a two-stage process for how Joseph handles this in this passage. At first he refuses, and then he flees. Listen to first how he refuses her in verses 8 through 10. He says, it says, But he refused her and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. There, there's five things to note here about how Joseph handles this sexual temptation. And from this, I think we can glean lessons for how we can resist sexual temptation in our lives. We note, first of all, that he recognizes that to give in to this would be wrong, but also it would be very hurtful to Potiphar. It would be very hurtful to him. This man who had been so kind and so generous to him, this is his wife. How could he possibly do this to him? It would hurt him. It would be an offense against him. He knows this, and he knows it would be wrong to repay Potiphar's kindness and generosity with betrayal and thievery. This would hurt the very man who had been so kind to him. Our, Our sin, our sin of any kind, but especially our sexual sin, whether it's a sin in our heart or in our mind or with our eyes or in our actions, our sexual sin always hurts the people around us. It is never just about us. It affects the people that are around us. It affects our loved ones. It affects our church family. It affects the lost people who are looking at us desperately hoping to see something different than what they see in culture. So that's the very first lesson that we pull from this. It hurts the people around us. But secondly, he also recognizes that first and foremost, this is an offense against God. Look at what he says in verse 10. He says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Sometimes we're so focused on how our sin affects people and the consequences of that, that we forget that our sin, whether it be sexual sin or other sin, it is first and foremost, it is an offense against a holy God. This is why King David cries out in his great prayer of confession uh, in Psalm 51, after he's confronted by the prophet Nathan for his sin with Bathsheba, He cries out in Psalm 51, against you, you only, have I sinned. He's he's not talking to Bathsheba there. He's not talking to Nathan. He's not talking to anyone but God. This is a prayer. He says, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He says, against you. Now, was his sin only against God? No. He also sinned clearly against Bathsheba. He 
clearly sinned against Uriah. He, he sinned against his own children, the, the children that would come from this illicit affair who ended up bearing dire consequences as a result of it. He sinned against his own nation who had entrusted him with ruling them. He sinned against a lot of people. But he saw his sin being such an offense against God that it, it was as if those others pale in comparison to what he had done against the Lord. Against you, you only have I sinned. We need to recognize that our sin of any kind is first and foremost a sin, an offense against God. Thirdly, we see that he refused to listen to her. Uh, look, at, look at verse 10. Now look at verse 10. Um, he sa- it says, And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. And so it gets to the point where he just tries to ignore her, turn a deaf ear, just shut her off, not even listen to her. At first, he's given a reason for his refusal. It's wrong. I shouldn't do this. How could I do this? And then it gets to the point where he's like, I can't even listen to this anymore. He just refuses to even listen to her. Now, I, I, I hesitate to include this in this list of how he resists temptation because we know ultimately this, this didn't work forever. Um, we know ultimately he had, to, he had to take further and more dire steps in order to resist temptation. But I do think we can learn a lesson from Joseph's ignoring her seductions, and that is that boundaries can be helpful when fighting temptation. Boundaries can be helpful, especially in fighting against sexual temptation. While this approach didn't work forever, it did work for a while. Verse 10 says that as she was making these advances day after day. So this was incessant. Every day she was, she was making these advances on him. He was bringing tea to, 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 to Potiphar. Lie with me. He was bringing the plants outdoors to water them. Lie with me. I mean, every day this was happening. And what was he doing? Ignore. Don't listen to her. He had set up this boundary in his mind. This was his boundary. His boundary was, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm not going to listen to it. I'm not going to let that get into my mind. Our boundaries might be different. Maybe we, put a, maybe we put a filter on our internet access. Maybe we, we put a boundary and refuse to use our devices after a certain time at night where we might be up late at night alone. Maybe we, we put a boundary and say we're not going to read that kind of novel because that just does something to my heart and gets, kind of gets my heart all um, crooked. Um, we put different kinds of boundaries. Maybe one of the boundaries is not being alone with someone of the opposite sex who isn't my spouse. Something that Joseph later discovered was a problem. The point is that boundaries can be helpful in fighting against sexual temptation. Now, before we move on to Joseph's final step and what he did to resist temptation, I want us to note something that God provided for him that Joseph was probably oblivious to, but was a gracious provision on God's part that helped him fight against temptation. And that is the presence of other people in his life. The presence of these other servants that provided a measure of accountability to Joseph. 
we should note that the only difference between the seductions that we find in verses 7 through 10 and the seductions that come later in verses 11 through 14, the only difference between those seductions is the presence of the other servants in the actual house. Because we're told in verse 11 that on that fateful day, nobody else was there. Verse 11 says, but one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there. And so that means prior to this, they were. Prior to, prior to this, the men of the house presumably were in the house. But on this fateful day, he was alone. Prior to this, they were there and they provided a measure of accountability. That's the fourth lesson on this moralistic plane, that the presence of others brings accountability in our fight against sin. We know this, right? This is a clear application for us. And you know, accountability is all about presence. What do I mean by that? Well, we obviously know that if others are with us, we're less likely to give in, right? The other servants were there in the house. That prevented prevented him from from giving in to it. It brought a measure of accountability to him because they were there. They could see, they could hear, they would know. And so that brought a measure of accountability as long as they were there. And so we know that as well. It's a whole lot easier to fight against temptation when there's someone else with us, present with us. But the reality is we're not always going to be with one another. That's just a reality of life, right? Our, our brothers and sisters in Christ are not going to be with us 24-7. There are times when they will not be around, just like with Joseph on this faithful day. But in those times, if we have the kind of relationship with our brothers and sisters who are going to ask us the hard questions and where we will have to give an account for our time as if they had been present with us, you see, then even though that is not ideal, it's better for them to actually be present with us. That's a good substitute in those times where clearly we are going to be alone. So reflectively, do you have people in your life like this to whom you are accountable This is a much bigger topic for us to flesh out and discuss in length this morning. So I would encourage you to dive into this in your base groups and look into one another's lives and ask one another that question this week. Joseph's fellow servants were present with him for a time, and because of their presence, he was able to resist that temptation from Potiphar's wife. But then all of a sudden, one day, they're gone. They're not there. And now Joseph's strategy in resisting this temptation turns on a dime. It completely changes at this point. He's no longer trying to reason with her. He's no longer sitting her down and saying, listen, this is why this is a bad thing. This is why this is a bad idea. This is why this is wrong. There's none of that. He also recognizes this is not a time just to ignore. This is not a time just to turn a deaf ear and not listen to her. He he is aware of his own flesh, his own natural desires, and he knows that if he stays, he he, he understands his own depravity enough, his own capacity as a sinner enough, he's keenly enough aware of that, that he recognizes that if he stays, he's likely to give in. And so he doesn't stay, he runs. He turns tail and he flees. 
And isn't this what the Apostle Paul told us to do when he warned the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6? Flee sexual immorality. The Greek, word, the, the Greek word flee means flee, means run, means get away, escape from it. He says flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So flee, run away. That's the fifth and final lesson on this moralistic plane. Flee from sexual temptation. Church, it is good to recognize that it hurts the people around us, that it's a good warning. It's good to recognize that it is, that it is first and foremost an offense against a holy God. That, too, is, a, is an excellent warning against this. It's good to have boundaries. It's good to have accountability. But sometimes you just got to run away from it. You just need to flee. And by the way, this strategy only works if you employ it sooner rather than later. Because if you wait too long to where the, where, where the temptation gets ramped up and it, and it gets heated, well, then it's too late. It's too late to run. So those are the lessons from this text on a moralistic plane. So what's Moses' point here? What's his, what's his intention in, in, in pinning these words for his original audience, the Israelites wandering the wilderness? What, what he intends is for these lessons to bear fruit in the lives of the Israelites wandering in the desert, that they might be warned of the dangers of sexual immorality and that they might implement and heed these warnings by implementing these things into their lives. And God intends the same thing for us today, to walk away from this with this same warning, to be wary of this. This is what Solomon did with his son. In Proverbs chapter 7, he, he warns his son against the siren song of sexual immorality. And his warning is, stay away from him. He, 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 he personifies sexual immorality and sexual temptation. He, he personifies it as a woman. That's because he's talking to his son. If he was talking to his daughter, he would personify it as a man. And so just listen to part of this warning, and we would do well to heed it as well. He says this, with much seductive speech, she, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O oh sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. May we heed that warning this morning by implementing some of these lessons that we learn from the story of Joseph. And may I submit that perhaps this is a very keen and stark warning this morning to some of you. Maybe you find yourself in that snare. Maybe you find yourself as a stag that is caught fast, not knowing that that arrow is about to pierce the liver. May I say to you, flee, flee, run away from it. But may I also say, 
that as New Testament believers looking back on this story through the lens of the gospel, that there is grace for those who have given in to this temptation. There is grace that is found in the cross of Calvary. Turn to Christ alone, and he will forgive, and he will restore, and he will rebuild. He's in the business of that. There is grace. But I want to spend the rest of our time this morning considering what lessons and what applications we might find from this story if we look at it not from the moralistic plane but from that redemptive historical plane. I would submit to you that those lessons that we pull from the moralistic moralistic plane are, are valid lessons but that they are secondary and that what we are about to cover is the primary lesson of this passage and the primary application of this passage. And the reason I say that is because of how the chapter itself is constructed. If you look at the narrative of the story, the, 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 the narrative, the middle part with, with Joseph and Potiphar's wife, it's bookended by four repetitions that the Lord is with Joseph. We see two in the first three verses, and we see two more at the end of the chapter in the last three verses. Look at verse 2. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. Where? In Potiphar's house, as a slave. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of the Egyptian master. Verse 3, and his master saw. So this, this pagan recognized that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord had caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Then look at the end of the chapter, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. Now he's in prison. The Lord's with him there. And showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And then verse 23, and the keeper of the prison, another pagan, he sees it, he notices it. And he paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So clearly, a key and central theme in this chapter for Moses as he's writing this story is that the presence of Yahweh was with Joseph. That is, that is the core theme that runs throughout this chapter. The Lord is with Joseph. And Moses wants to, the reader to, to recognize this, that, that the Lord is with Joseph all throughout this episode. When he's sold as a slave to Potiphar, as he rises to prominence in Potiphar's house, and later after the story with Potiphar, as he's thrown into prison, we're told that the Lord is with him there. And that the Lord causes him to rise in prominence even while he's in captivity. Just consider the ups and downs of, of Joseph. Not, just, not, not throughout his life, but just in this one story. The highs and the lows, the ups and the downs. We start the chapter with Joseph as a slave. That's a low. And then he rises to prominence as a slave. He's put in charge of everything in Potiphar's house. That's a high. But then he's thrown into prison because of the false accusation of Potiphar's wife. That's a low. But then he rises in prominence, even in, in captivity. That's a high. And the question is, Moses is doing this on, on purpose. So, so what's his purpose? Why, why does Moses want the reader to be convinced of the fact that the Lord was with Joseph in the highs and the lows, in the ups, and in the downs. It's because Moses knows 
that there will be highs and lows, ups and downs in the lives of the Israelites as they wander in the wilderness somewhere between slavery in Egypt and entering into the promised land. There will be highs and lows. And there were. They start out in bondage in Egypt. That's a low. That was a low for 430 years. But then they were delivered out of bondage through crossing through the Red Sea. That was a high. But then soon after, they run out of food. And they begin to starve. And they begin to complain to Moses and to God. That's a low. And what does God do? He sends manna from heaven. That's a high. There's food everywhere. But then they begin to run out of water. They begin to thirst. And again, they grumble and they complain to Moses and to God. You're, you're causing us to starve. There's plenty of water back in Egypt with the Nile. It was a low. And then God provides water from the rock as Moses strikes it. That was a high. And we could go on over and over and over again. We see these highs and these lows, these ups and these downs. And the Lord wanted them to know through this story that he penned through Moses' hands that the Lord was still with them in both the highs and the lows. That's the first lesson that we draw from this story in the redemptive historical plane, that the Lord is with us in both the highs and the lows. He's present with us. He promises to never abandon his children. He promises to never leave them or forsake them. He promised Jacob himself, Joseph's dad, back in Genesis chapter 28. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Moses, in turn, promised the Israelites before his death Deuteronomy 31.8, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. So do not, be fear, do not fear or be dismayed. God in turn told Joshua, as Joshua assumes the reins of, of the mantle of leadership for the nation of Israel as they prepare to cross over the Jordan into the promised land, God tells Joshua in Joshua 1.5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And I will not leave you or forsake you. God promises us through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 41, verse 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And how can he do those things except that he is with us? The psalmist exclaims in Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. Who, what can man do to me? And of course, Jesus reminds us at the end of the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, before he ascends to the Father's right hand, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friend, just as the Lord was with Moses, both in the highs and in the lows, so he will be with you and I in both the highs and the lows. We know that he's with us in the highs, because sometimes we can just feel his presence. But when we're in the lows, when we're in the downs, 
Sometimes his presence is not so much apprehended by feeling as it is by faith. And so we, we must trust and we must believe that he has not left us. He has not abandoned us. That he is with us, whether we feel it or not. We trust and we know and we believe that he is with us. That's our first lesson. But not only do we learn from this passage that in the highs and lows of life that the Lord is with us, but we also learn from this passage that the Lord is sovereign over those highs and lows. We've already noted that in the life of Joseph, as recorded by Moses in the book of Genesis, that we learn some very critical lessons about God's sovereignty. And those lessons continue in this passage. You know, to, to know that he is with us in the highs and lows gives us comfort. But to know that he is sovereign over those highs and lows gives us great confidence in his rule and his reign over us and our family and our church and our job and over all of the universe. I don't know about you, but if God was surprised by our lows if he was taken aback by them as if he were not expecting them and wasn't planning on them happening, that doesn't inspire confidence in God. And that's probably a good thing because that's not how the Bible describes God. The Bible describes God as being sovereign, which means that he is the author, the inventor, the ruler and the judge of all of life and everything that happens in life and in the universe. Everything. Nothing happens that was not part of his plan. Nothing escapes either his foreknowledge or his foreordination. And I would submit to you there's nothing different between those two. What he knows will happen, he plans to happen. Think of Joseph. We, we look at what his brothers did back in chapter 37. And what would we describe that except sin and evil, right? To sell your brother in slavery is wrong, is evil, it's sin. And who did that? His brothers. They're the ones who did that. And they are responsible for their actions. But friend, listen to how the psalmist describes what's happening in the Joseph story. In Psalm 105, the psalmist is describing part of the story of Joseph. And he's describing it in lyrical and poetic form. And listen to how he describes what happened. Psalm 105, verses 16 through 19. When he summoned a famine on the land, who's he? It's the Lord. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. So who sent Joseph to Egypt? God, right? But wait a second. I thought his brothers did that. They did. But ultimately, 
God sent him there and he sovereignly utilized their sin as the means of sending Joseph to Egypt. Don't ask me to explain how God is sovereign over their sin except that he is. Man chooses to sin and he's responsible for it, but God sovereignly even uses that to affect his perfect and sovereign plan. So this should give us confidence that no matter what we're facing in life, no matter the high, no matter the low, no matter the up or the down, the good or the bad, we can know that God is in control and that he is never not in control. And and, and parenthetically, this is probably a good time for us to to, to recognize uh, uncategorically that our God is also good Whenever we talk about the sovereignty of God, it's important for us to affirm the goodness and the holiness of God. Both of those must be held up to one another because they're both desperately important for us to understand the character of God in the Bible. To have one or the other, or to have one without the other, is to have something less than what the God describes, what the Bible describes as our God. If God is sovereign but not good, then he's a monster. If he is good but not sovereign, he's something less than God. But he is both sovereign and good. He is never not in control. One human emotion that God never experiences, he he doesn't experience a number of human emotions, but one of them is surprise. God is never surprised. In order to be surprised, you have to have a sense of ignorance or some level of not being aware or being clueless. And our God never has any of those things. We do, which is why we can be surprised. Just ask John Hemingway. I didn't get his permission to share this, but that's okay. John and Martha Hemingway were married just a, just a couple of weeks ago. And is John in here? All right, good, I can tell the story. They were married just a couple of weeks ago, and they were, they, while they were both ready for marriage, they were, they, they were going through premarital counseling with me, and, the, and, and they did get permission, or Martha got permission from me for this, but um, they were both ready for marriage and planning for their wedding, but, but Martha kept John in the dark as to the real wedding day um, and sprung it on him at the last minute, and the funny thing is um, their whole base group was in on it. They all knew as well. But John was clueless. John was clueless. And that's why it was a surprise. And church, God is never clueless. You're never going to throw him a surprise party. If you did, it would be one of those surprise parties where the person that you're throwing throwing it for already knows everything that has happened and all the planning that has taken place. God is never surprised by anything. And so while you may be taken aback by that cancer diagnosis he's not while you and I might be surprised at how long the pandemic lasts he's not he not only knows what will happen he plans what will happen and then beyond that he works to ensure that his plan is perfectly executed and that brings us to the final lesson from chapter 39 on this redemptive historical plane You see, the Lord not only is with us in the highs and lows, he is not only sovereign over those highs and lows, 
but he is working in and through those highs and lows to bring about his perfect plan. So let's begin to back up from the trees for a moment so we can see the whole forest. Let's be reminded of what God is doing here. Not just in the life of Joseph, not just in this one chapter, not just in the weeds of his life. But as we back up to 10,000 feet, we see that he's also working in Joseph's family. Now, who is this family? Well, we remember that Joseph is one of 12 brothers, 12 sons of Jacob. God had changed Jacob's name to Israel. And so we see this is not just any family. This is the beginning of a nation. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we back up even further to 20,000 feet. And we see that he's building that nation, a promise that he first made to Joseph's great-granddad, Abraham. He says, I will build you into a great nation. Well, they're not a nation right now, but they're a, they're a nation in seed form. And Moses is explaining to, to the Israelites the backstory of how they ended up in Egypt to begin with. Because it had been in 430 years. And he's this is how you got to Egypt. But after 430 years, they will come out, not a family, but a nation. Some two and a half million strong. A great nation, just as God had promised Abraham. But God's promise to Abraham was, was more than just making them into a great nation, but, but, that, but that through that nation, through Abraham, through his scene, through his line, through his family, he would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, all the peoples of the earth. And so we back away further, the 30,000 feet now, and we see that that's exactly what God is doing. He's working out his plan to be a blessing to all nations through the nation of Israel. Because it is, it is from this people, from this nation, from the line of Jacob that God will bring his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the King, the God-man, the seed of the woman who was promised from Genesis 3.16 to, to one day crush the head of the serpent and defeat forever the rule and reign of sin and death for all those who would come to him in faith and repentance. So this is what God is doing. This is, his, this is his plan. This is, this is the plan that he's working out. And we see it from 30,000 feet, but now let's drill back down into the story. And, and now we see Joseph in slavery at the beginning. And we recognize that in God's providence, he's working even in that to bring about his plan. We see Joseph being tempted by Potiphar, and, they, and we know that, that though, though we know that, that God never tempts anyone to sin, somehow God in his sovereignty even includes this in his plan so that Joseph might be thrown into prison. Well, what, what purpose on green earth could God have for Joseph being in prison? Well, let's fast forward a little bit to next week and the week after. As he's in prison, a couple of the prison mates that get thrown in there is the Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker. And they have dreams in prison. And Joseph interprets those dreams. And he gets known as a guy that interprets dreams. Later
later, Pharaoh himself will have some dreams that nobody else can interpret. And someone says, there's this Hebrew that's back in jail. And he can interpret dreams. Pharaoh summons him into his court. He interprets the dream rightly. And you know the rest of the story. God providentially uses all of these what seem to be seemingly unrelated coincidences to execute his sovereign and perfect plan for Joseph, for his family, for the future of the nation of Israel, and for Gentiles of all nations and all peoples. Because God, his plan all along was to redeem a people back to himself, and that is what he was doing. Friend, in both the highs and the lows, God is working. In the ups and the downs, he's working. And his work and his plans are so much larger, so much bigger than our little stories. He cares about our little stories. He does. He cares about us getting sold into slavery and being tempted by Potiphar's wife and and, and being thrown in prison. He, He cares about our little stories, and he's with us in our little stories. But his plans are so much higher and so much bigger. And though you and I just don't understand sometimes how he can possibly utilize this low and fit it into a plan that's going to be for good, it's exactly what he's doing. So do not lose heart. And do not lose hope. Do not lose heart. Do not lose hope. Trust that God is at work even when you don't understand. And trust that he is working all things, both the highs and the lows, the goods and the bads, the ups and the downs. He's working all things together for our good and his glory. Would you pray with me? Our God and King, we thank you so much for the reminder this morning from your word that you're with us that though it seems as though you're absent sometimes and we wonder where are you that you're right there you've never left us just pray for the person in this room the person downstairs the person listening online who is in that low may you remind them Lord that you are with them that you're a God who loves well those who are in the lows. That you weep with those who weep. And you comfort those who need comfort. Remind them that you are with them, Lord. And then also remind them that you are in control. As hard as that may be to grasp, Lord, remind them that you have not left your throne. You're not surprised by their circumstances. And that you intend and you will, by your grace and for your glory and for our good, you will work even through this to bring about your perfect and sovereign plan. And in faith, Lord, that's what we want. 
to the degree that we want something other than your sovereign plan, Lord, change our wills, change our hearts, attune our hearts to you, turn our affections from the things of this world and what it offers to you and your kingdom such that we can truly and rightly say that what awaits us in heaven, what our reward is, is to be in your presence. Something that right now we take by faith, but then knowing that at that day our faith will be made sight. So help us until then, Lord, to long for that day And in the highs and the lows, the ups and the downs, to trust you. Father, we pray for the person in this room who recognizes that they are apart from you. That they stand under the weight of sin and they stand under the judgment of that sin. But they recognize that Jesus, your son, was sent by you to redeem sinners like us. So that we don't have to spin our wheels and run around on a rat race trying to rat wheel, trying to, to impress you or appease your wrath or make ourselves acceptable to you. But Christ has sufficiently paid for the sins of all those who come to you in faith and repentance. And so for that person, Lord, I ask that you would give them an awareness of their sin, lead them to repent of that sin, turn away from it. And trust in Christ alone to forgive them. And then walk with them and walk with us as we seek to trust you each and every day with this life that you set before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.